0: Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 280 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, safely returned from a successful first road trip with Mr. Trousers. You are a brave woman, yeah. although I know that it went well, so I don't know why I just said that. Yeah, small cat, really likes the car. Just sat on my lap, looked out the window, had a little snooze, was a total delight.
1: Didn't even put him in a in a basket, just...
0: He started in a basket and he wasn't keen on being in the basket. So I thought, well, let's try and see how it goes. And yeah, he just curled up on my lap. That is so bold. It's bold. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know,
2: fortune favoured me uh, being bold this time, Jen. (sighs) Okay, Peggy would be under the brake pedal the second I released her. On the journey back, and this is
0: a three and a half, four hour journey. On the journey back, he was a bit like, I'm bored now. But, you know, so
1: was I. So fair enough. That's what I say to Lyra on the train. She's like, "Mummy, I'm bored," and I'm like, "I'm bored too, mate."
2: Okay. That's life.
1: Get used to it. I'm Hannah Dunlevy, and
2: I'm starting to think that we cause earthquakes. <gasps> I mean, that feels a little bit narcissistic, if I'm honest. <laughs> it, it does, but let me let me lay out the evidence. Which, well, you know, Licky, I went to Turkey earlier this year. Week before I left, earthquake. You had a holiday booked to Morocco. Yeah. Week before you left, what happened? Four days, mate. What happened? Earthquake. I am a week off, no about 10 days off going to Iceland. What happened? 1000 earthquakes. <laughs> 1, <500 laughs> 1, earthquakes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I can take myself out of the equation. Mine was an anomaly. It's
1: basically proximity to you caused these earthquakes. Excuse me, I haven't been abroad since the year of the Lord's like 20 whatever the <laughs> yeah. fuck it was. like I'm I'm not taking responsibility for this shit.
2: I just I can't I can't believe it. And of course now we're waiting for a um a volcano to erupt. And as I told you earlier, all eyes on Iceland. In the meanwhile, Etna blows her stack. What was I doing ten minutes before Etna blew her stack? Talking about going on holiday, just Sicily. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> scenes, <laughs> honey. Your reliability. I am like Nicolas Cage, as in everywhere I go, <laughs> it's a disaster film. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, fun though, this is. I mean, Godspeed the people of Iceland, particularly that town that's been evacuated because, yeah, I might miss a holiday and lose a couple of hundred quid. They might lose everything they've ever
1: owned, which is horrific. Mm. It is. I'm Jen Offord and I have witnessed the fitness. Damn, Mickey Noonan is strong. Did she stop a vehicle crashing into you with her bare hands? I mean, almost, Hannah. She pulled a sledge... Full of weight so did i to be fair but she did it in a much more competent fashion <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck no she'd say the shit that woman can lift it's crazy she was like you can do it jen you can do it i was like i can't it's i, I it's not moving it's, it's literally not moving i got it's
0: not me <laughs> i promise you that's technique not strength but yeah it's a weird one but yeah jen jen absolutely slayed it as well um who knew that in the year of our lord 2023 i'd be using phrases like slayed i don't know i'm sorry everyone but i do think it's because i go to a gym that thinks it's a disco which is amazing but yeah
2: and also you were pulling things on a sleigh that's right?
0: true
1: and we're about to talk about vampires so it's all coming up Milo. bam 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 oh my god is that more earthquakes <laughs> <laughs> coming
0: up hula hoop goddess Yulia pictina talks to me about the clique circus life
2: and delicious round potato snacks Is there nothing you can't fit crisps into, Mickey? Is there no interview? (laughs) She's literally a hula hoop
0: expert. How was I not going to ask her about hula hoops? (laughs) Playing hula hoops, my favourite crisp,
1: just to return to that. I love
2: a snack you can wear. (laughs) (laughs) I talked to musician Jessica Hoop. More hoops. More hoops. More hoops, yeah. About Joni Mitchell and her new Radio 4 series, Legend, The Joni Mitchell Story, also available on BBC Sounds. And
1: Jenny off the blocks. Sorry, how did I miss the news about Emma Hayes? No, I thought you had like an alert set up for her. No,
0: I t- t- there we go. And teenage angst, toxic relationships, and trust me, I'm as sorry as everyone else that in this uh, week's regular day two we watched <laughs> are you? 2008's Twilight. I am Hannah. I
2: genuinely are, are. you? <laughs> I'm not. But first, what the fuck? What the fuck? And what the fuck? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q stink. Bush Telegraph.
1: Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are casually strolling back into your bin fire while humming a jaunty tune. Right. Why isn't Ian Nese putting his trotters up? Apparently, according to an article, he's bored shitless, is the quote, I think, in the yeah. Daily Mirror. And when I'm bored shitless, I just, like, eat a biscuit or something. Rather than just... Like... Yeah come back in to fuck everything up even more than when I left it. Watch The Wire again
2: or something, yeah. This is David Cameron. Okay, this is very new information for us. I was saying I'd like to have some fun facts about on what occasion a Prime Minister has ever come back into government and I haven't really had the time because we've been writing BT and recording so I don't really have a lot to say except, what the fuck?
1: What the fuck? I have like almost... Too much to say and and at the same time just want to scream into the abyss. So just what I will say, however, is, well, number one, the photo of him that they used (laughs) on the uh, Conservatives' Twitter was like older than time. They've definitely gone with like his Tinder photo (laughs) rather than a modern representation of David Cameron. But also, I think if you are so lacking in self-awareness as to think that you could come back to this shithole that you are, you know, at at least, like, a big part of being responsible for. If you think you can do that, you have absolutely no fucking business being in government because you are dangerous, frankly.
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, though, it's exactly the same argument of the sort of people who want power shouldn't have power. I mean, CEOs... Prime Ministers and Presidents and Psychopaths are all quite closely linked yeah. in a lot of ways. I'm just wondering whether literally nobody nobody else wanted to be the Foreign Secretary at the I moment. I did wonder whether that might be what Maybe it. Maybe James
1: Cleverly did. He was the Foreign Secretary. He's basically been demoted to make way for, for David Cameron. And they've put a tweet out this morning saying, huge move. James Cleverly is now the Home Secretary. You've literally demoted him.
2: What yeah. are you talking about? The Home Secretary traditionally was like known as the Poison Chalice, wasn't it? It was the job that nobody lasted very long in because, obviously, that your sort of remit is all controversy, you know. I mean, Braverman's gone, though, so that's
1: one positive thing, maybe. That's something. Yeah, I suppose, you know, let's face it. The, the toys have been in a bit of a pickle, haven't they? <laughs> Amid Suella's hate marches and deportation debates and tent torching, there is plenty more where that came from just this morning it was also announced that ministers have drawn up plans for benefits cuts to those who are unable to work to save a shed load of cash because historically Fair. fucking around with this stuff has gone really well hasn't it but it's not just me and lee who are horrified by the lack of compassion we're seeing in our political discourse at the moment hannah and i feel like i'm seeing a lot of other people who feel this way including lots of people who historically voted conservative Right. But when even the people who helped put Margaret Thatcher in power back in 1979 are turning against their policies, they really are in trouble, I would say. So in an exclusive with the Independent, Saatchi and Saatchi's chief strategy officer, Richard Huntington, condemned the government's divisiveness and said that Britain needs saving from five more years of stagnation, cruelty and despair. I mean, hear, hear. The advertising agency was, of course, responsible for both the Labour Isn't Working and the later Demonise, if you remember those campaigns on behalf of the Tories. And in case you're wondering if they've had a sudden swing to the left over at Saatchi and Saatchi, well, Huntington said, whether you loved her or hated her, Margaret Thatcher was the embodiment of effective government. <laughs> That's something I hear people say quite a lot about Margaret Thatcher. Say what you like, but she got things done. I mean, you know, the same could be said of a lot of politicians, but let's, let's not go down that road. Say what you like about Mussolini, trains <laughs> run on time. Exactly. So no, it's not that. It's just that he thinks that the policies of this government are even crueler than hers. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I've seen a
2: worrying amount of people recently saying they're not going to vote for Labour because they don't agree with Keir Starmer over his position on the Middle East. And all I would say to that is, you know, the same thing that they say to you on an aeroplane, that they say to you about your mental health. You know, you have to get your own oxygen mask on first before you can help anybody else with theirs. If we are in a situation where, as I saw on Twitter and in the Camden New Journal, we are putting tents full of people's possessions Mm. in the back of rubbish trucks then yeah we need to vote Labour we really really need to vote Labour
1: I think it will have an impact on his popularity but I don't I don't think it's enough like at the moment he's on course to win by like have a majority of over 200 seats so maybe David Cameron is going to be the thing I mean it it strikes me (laughs) that this is like a populist move right they've gone well all those ones who think we're like proper bastards they quite like David Cameron didn't they should we bring him back somehow yeah but is it going to be enough I don't know Is he going to become the party leader again? Oh, God, don't let it happen.
2: God, they'll be bringing William A back again, won't they? (laughs) For a third time. Yeah. Jen, question. Do you know who Buffy St. Marie is?
1: No, I do not.
2: So for you and for anyone who doesn't, she's a Canadian folk singer, the first Indigenous North American to win an Oscar, the first Indigenous North American to appear on Sesame Street and is a social justice activist of more than 60 years standing. She's responsible for a few absolute bangers too. In fact, I think I've probably put Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee on more than one of our playlists. She's got a complicated backstory and claims Cree heritage and is believed to have been born in 1941 on the Pierpot First Nation Reserve in Saskatchewan. She was reportedly taken from her parents when she was an infant as part of what was termed the Sixties Scoop, which is when they took Native American, Native Canadian children from their families and placed them with with white families, as she was raised by a white family in the US. Now, I say believed to be, because that was very much the case until the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's investigative team, The Fifth Estate, published an investigation into the singer's ancestry, alleging her life story is part of a broader narrative, quote, full of inconsistencies and inaccuracies. (laughs) Surprised? Well, maybe not if this is the first time you're hearing of her, but you should be. I- I'll be trying to think about what the equivalent of this is. And maybe it's like finding out that Peter Tatchell is really straight. Maybe. Or that Andrea Dworkin was really a man. Maybe. Because sure, there has been a lot of race fakers and what have come to be known as pretendians discussed in recent years, including Sashin Littlefeather. I don't know if you know who she is. She's the woman that Marlon Brando sent to... Oh, yeah, yeah. Collects his Oscar, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, also, potentially not a Native American. But the thing with, with Saint Marie is that she has been consistently in the public eye for more than half a century. But CBC News reported it had found a birth certificate indicating she was born to white parents in Massachusetts. Now, this story is way more complicated than I've got time for here. So, as ever, I'd encourage people to read more. But here are the broad strokes. Heidi St. Marie, daughter of Buffy St. Marie's older brother, Alan, told the CBC, quote, she's clearly not indigenous or Native American. She wasn't born in Canada. She was clearly born in the United States. St. Marie herself said, quote, I have always struggled to answer questions about who I am. Through that research, what became clear and what I've always been honest about is that I don't know where I'm from or who my birth parents are, and I will never know.
1: Oh, that sounds like she's fudged a bit, doesn't it? It does
2: sound slightly fudged, I have to say. She has also been defended by her lawyer and the Peerpot First Nation in Saskatchewan who adopted St. Marie as an adult. In a statement to members of the tribe, and I apologise in advance if I mispronounce these, Deborah, well, that one was quite easy, and Natorney's Pierpot said that, quote, Buffy is our family. We chose her and she chose us. We claim her as a member of our family and all of our family members are from the Pierpot First Nation. To us, that holds far more weight than any paper documentation or colonial record-keeping ever could. Cree author Daryl J. McLeod, however, told the Toronto Star that St. Marie is an honorary member of the Pierpott family, but, quote, she grew up with a white family and white privilege and added that she should apologise to Indigenous people for her, quote, betrayal. Wow. Yeah. 60 years is a... Uh, yeah, this, see, this is what I don't understand, because, like, Sassine's Little Littlefeather, she was really famous for a period and then every so often she comes up again because there's that famous story about John Wayne being really racist to her, although it transpires she wasn't the race that she was purporting to be. She hasn't been in the charts and in the news for 60 years, like Buffy St. Marie has been. I went to see Craig Campbell once, the comedian, and he sung in the middle of his show, Bury My Heart, a Wounded Knee, and people knew what it was. That's how integral like she is to, to Canada as like an icon. This is, it is a mad story. But, you know, identity is complicated, so I wouldn't like Isn't to come it? to a firm conclusion. <laughs> and let's just leave it at that. So, Jen, allow me to take you to a magical world of good news. Yes, please. You and anyone else who saw the news at the weekend and thought, I wish all we had on our streets was a alive. <laughs> a social attitude survey paints a way more positive picture than the media, social media or actual events seem to suggest. The European Social Survey has taken place every two years since 2001 and includes face-to-face interviews with some 1,150 people. And its latest poll suggests that views on immigration have actually become more favourable since Brexit. Maybe because no one can get a plumber. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) For the first time, almost 60% thought immigration was very positive for the UK economy. And fifty six percent thought it made the country a better place to live. For reference, in two thousand and two those figures were just seventeen and twenty percent.
1: It's all that fruit all that fruit rotting in the fields, isn't it? Yeah. But, oh dear. Well that's it's something, Jen. It's something. A bit like Woolworths, isn't it? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Absolutely. Oh. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not
0: equal, are they? Sexism of the week.
1: It's that time of the week where we travel to my neck of the woods to ask the good people of Essex, how funny is that joke? Furthermore, (laughs) is that even a joke? I don't know. Hannah, you were in the actual business of writing jokes. Maybe you could help Manningtree based garage floors direct with their structure (laughs) and indeed content as we look at some of their advertised based lols. Last month, the company had an advert removed from an Ipswich billboard after Suffolk Rape Crisis accused it of perpetuating the culture of rape. The advert in question showed a picture of an attractive young woman in a dress and high heels crouching next to a car alongside the slogan It's so easy to lay.
3: <laughs> oh,
1: however, fair swear to the company which Suffolk Rape Crisis said recognised it had made an honest mistake. Upon receiving the complaint in which the charity said the advert played into archaic stereotypes, it was immediately pulled and the advertising space donated to Suffolk Rape Crisis. The charity, which currently has 300 women on its waiting list to receive support, said they were impressed with the prompt removal and replaced it with a billboard which reads, It was just a joke, with just a joke crossed out, and replaced by the word sexist. It was just sexist. So let's use this opportunity to give them even more publicity. Rape Crisis England and Wales is doing amazing work to help the victims of sexual violence. And these are tough times for charities. So if you would like to chip them a quid or two, or if you are in need of support yourself, visit its website at rapecrisis.org.uk. Yeah, quite.
2: I mean, you do wonder who's in those meetings where they go, hang on, I've got this. I think we should make this joke, and nobody raises any queries about it. I
1: genuinely don't know if it was supposed to be a joke. It's so unclear. If you look at the picture of the advert, you're just like, is that or is that just supposed to be a statement of fact? But you like, it's just really unfortunate how you've done this. I don't. I I genuinely don't know. But yeah, let's put more women in positions of powers. Let's put more women in meeting rooms, and then maybe <laughs> they'd go. Oh, uh, yeah, actually, maybe not.
2: Yeah, because sometimes things do happen. I mean, and I'll give you an example of this. When I was working at a local newspaper, we had a story about an an old lady. This this couple had phoned up to say that, that the, the, their mum had been released from hospital at 6am in the morning and she hadn't got anywhere to go. And she hadn't got a way of ringing them and you know, she just basically, they turned up to visit her in the hospital and the hospital said, we've released her. And they were like, well, where the fuck is she? And she just wandered down to reception, sort of the entrance area, and was just sitting on a hard chair in the cold where she'd been sitting for like five hours. And the hospital hadn't rung them to come and collect her or, or they hadn't helped her get in touch. They just told her to get out of the bed and leave. And this family were rightly horrified. And I had about a minute to write a headline on this story before it went to press. And I wrote the headline, Family's Horror at Nan's Early Morning Discharge. And that headline now circulates in lessons on how you should double check that your headline can not be read another way before you press publish. <laughs> it Actually, genuinely, in the journalism school in Harlow, it's on their records as a, a teaching exercise. <laughs> so, yes, just just always check, people, whether very easy to lay, can be read <laughs> another way before you press send. that would just be my advice oh hannah
0: hello i'm joined on the zoom by julia pictina hula hoop artist and founding member of the olivier award-winning la clique julia hello hello how are you doing i'm
3: all right thanks how are you doing i'm good i'm good where in the world are you at the moment I'm in landing at the moment Yes, we're starting La Clique tonight, the first show. Exciting. That is so exciting. So what can someone expect when they come to
0: a La Clique show?
3: It's something unusual, a burlesque, circusy, funny, and sometimes me being on stage I'm like watching the show and say, Do we really do that? <laughs> Too crazy to to be true. And they're quite
0: intimate shows, aren't they? It's kind of circus cabaret.
3: Yes. It's, it's a little bit of everything, so people does not get only cabaret or only circus. We mix everything together. I think it's it's more more interesting.
0: As a performer, though, there's nowhere to hide. Your audience are like the whites of their eyes, right? In very close to you. How does that feel?
3: Oh, well, it's every day, every, every time before going to on stage... It's a huge adrenaline because also like, you know, I work with the hula hoops, which sometimes I can lose it. Like it's uh, it's normal, the artist, but it's, for me, I always like worried that I don't drop it and my imagination in my head goes, oh, I hope I'm not going to kill anyone yes. <laughs> in the head today. But it did happen, but people were really, uh, really nice and understandable. I mean, I guess you feel part of the show if you're hit in the face with a hula hoop. You, you're involved. Well, I hope, I hope they
0: think that way. So Le Clique is almost 20 years old. It'll be 20 years old in 2024. And you've been there since the beginning. So can you tell us how it came about?
3: Well, I was performing with another part of a group from Europe. It was uh, David O'Meara and Caesar Twins, Acrobat Henson and... Um... We were performing in Germany during our show, and then suddenly our producer said we'd been invited to Scotland and trying this completely new show in the tent, which was um, something different and something new. We arrived to Scotland for that show, and it went very well, so since then... We start traveling with each other, like, I don't know, maybe a hundred years, I don't know. <laughs> so we start traveling around the world, Australia, America, uh, Europe. It was amazing. It So we became like a proper family. Like, we know each other, like, everything from inside and outside. We know everyone's mistakes. The greatest thing, we've been really supportive to each other. Something happens to someone, would be there, would be helping would be really, really, like, a a proper memory.
0: You clearly have to be when you're involved in something like a circus because you're all relying on each other to stay safe, right? And you've been a circus performer since you were six years old, which is incredible. I know that, obviously, you don't really have anything to compare it to. It's always been your world. But what was it like growing up in that world and growing up as a circus performer?
3: I was uh, very indeed like, flexible and... uh very entertained and you know I went to circus studio and it was the um, it was city that called Zaporozhye and I was dreaming to go to the proper school like studying there circus school uh, and it was in Kiev and uh, it was almost uh, like I wouldn't go there because we didn't have enough money to travel and my grandfather said oh look it's a long way away, and you're quite young. And because I left my family when I was 14, and I actually I said, "No, I'm going to this circus school because this is my life." Since that, I started practicing contortion act. In that period, in the second course, there was a one lady who was creating a show, and she took me to her show, which it was like a night show in the nightclub. So I had lots of problems with my circus school because it's like, she's quite young and she's already gone to these um, nightclubs and like, what is she doing there? But I just didn't listen really to anyone. I was like, I was really dreaming about being on stage, being uh, seeing the audience and feel the audience. And since that, uh, I started traveling with their group called Bingo. Actually, that was my first time I went abroad with uh, with this group and, and we did the show uh, very well and we went to Monaco and we won Bronze Clown uh, as a team as a unique modern uh, dancing circusy team they're still doing it right now so but that part is younger, younger generation
0: You started off as a contortionist you said then that you were really bendy and that was what you did so how did you move to hoop? How did you choose that as your specialism?
3: Okay. So just when, uh, when I was in, in this group, uh, bingo, we wasn't just performing our acts. We were also dancing a lot. And, uh, being a contortion, you need to be really careful with your back, not moving really hard or quick or, or wearing heavy boots and dancing with it. So I actually injured myself. Right. I injured myself and uh, I went to see the, uh, the doctor and did the scan and they said, look, you can't be a really good contortionist because you're going to be in pain all the time. What if you just have a break and then think what else you can do? And actually, I hated hula hoops because <laughs> I hated everything what you need to have in your hands like juggling or hula hoops or anything in your hands because for me it was like, no, 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 I don't deal with this. The producer of the show, Bingo, she pushed me saying, just try, try a couple of tricks and uh, we'll see. And then she actually she pushed me harder saying, if you don't do the, the hoop act, then I don't need it anymore.
4: And Ooh, because ultimatum. I wanted to,
3: yeah, I wouldn't try um, aerial uh, hoop. But just because one day I felt and I was scared of heights. So I was like, I was completely confused what I'm gonna do because I'm quite young and my career just hasn't started yet properly. So I was like taking the hula hoops and because being angry that I'm losing them, I break lots of hula hoops by throwing them. I was like, okay, I'm stopping now. I quit. I don't want to do it. And then finally, I I just kept doing it afterwards. And then actually, I'm thank God or thank that that producer whoever that actually pushed me to continue because the hula hoops are amazing and as I know how to move them people are very pleased to see it oh it's
0: particularly mesmerizing now I am a huge fan of circus I've done a little bit of aerial myself very badly but like I love it the adrenaline is incredible but hoops are so mesmerizing and you watch you when you are catching them on your feet, or you've got four going at once. What sort of training is involved to get to the incredible level that you're at?
3: I would say, as many times you continue, uh, like repeating, your brain uh, remembers over and over. And, and then, of course, it's concentration. First of all, it's, it's a real discipline. If you want to be a good, you have to do as many as, as you can. And also, yeah, training, like, it's all about a little bit of everything, a little bit of acrobatic, a little bit of stretching, a little bit of uh, dancing and uh, acting. I mean, you can't just uh, go on stage and do the trick and, and go, go off. Of course, you want to be interesting. So you're putting together all those little things, and then you become tired. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I've seen some of your YouTube videos and it's amazing because the amount of focus you must have to have to keep those hoops doing what you want them to do, what you're making them do. But you're also having a little flirt with the audience and like making sure they know that you can see them, you're engaging with them.
3: Yeah, that's important. You have to connect to the people, yeah. With the tent, with the Spiegel tent, actually it's perfect uh, opportunity because they're very close to you. When you just go on stage with all your adrenaline and, and like being scared, you just have to like cut it off and say, "Okay, they are with you now, so just do it together."
0: I think as well, though, most audiences, but particularly with circus, because you're seeing stuff that is just astonishing. People really want to be, like see that magic and be entertained. They're really there to have a good time, right?
3: Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I feel it, especially after after the end, they're like, Wow, thank you. That was that was great. Which for me is like, well, thank you for your applause, because actually exchanging the emotions and everyone's happy.
0: It's really interesting that you've used the word emotions there as well, because I think I love theatre, I love going and going to a gig, I really love comedy. But circus, when I've seen circus that is the time I get probably the most emotional because of the, the kind of effort and skill and talent involved. I find it really does, like, get me right in the heart.
3: Yeah. Even, like, a music, for example. Like, you know, I've done... Last year, I've done uh, the show called Majestic. It's a similar. Like, it was in Spiegelton as well. So my friend Betty, who was actually creating this show, he wrote me a message, and it was actually just before... Our, like after the war started and I was like just moved to Bulgaria and I'm like oh what I'm gonna do I'm depressed I'm I don't know what to do with myself what's going on what's going on and then he said would you like to try and do the show with us and I haven't been on stage for seven years before then wow. because I had my yeah I had my son uh and I was like giving my life to to my son and like doing completely different stuff I was training a bit about like fitness. And then he just said, look, you've got like a couple of months. So do you think you can do it? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I started training and I, and I started training with the I started putting new music because with the Vanessa main music, which, is, which is the original one, I kind of got, you know, tired. And I thought, well, maybe something new will be good. So I sent the video, a little video to Betty with a different music and he's like yeah it's it's quite cool it's it's modern and it's nice but actually let's go back to another to your old one because it's just so emotionally like you know it's kind of like sometimes when i feel sad like and i put my music on i f- like i feel I feel sadness, but sometimes if if I'm happy, this music also can can make my face completely different and smiley. And So it's also like, I think it's very important to what music you've got as well and how you feel it and how you express yourself.
0: Absolutely. The violin, I do think, is one of those things. You just summed it up really nicely. It can kind of make you get involved with your sadness when you feel sad, but it can also be really uplifting. The strings really just do go straight to the heart, I think.
3: In your yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I wonder if there was a, a big circus scene in Ukraine.
3: Oh, well, would you have a standard circus? Like, it's like a proper building, and we do like, uh, you know, animals there and like uh, stuff like that. Would you have uh looking like Spiegel tent, but it's actually only a tent? Uh-huh. And they do it like usually on in the summer times. But at the moment, I'm not sure if it was a show like that. Probably not safe to do that right now, no. No, I don't think so. No. May I ask how
0: you and your family are doing? How are you how are you doing?
3: My mom is in she's in Poland right now with my younger sister. Uh, my my brother, he just had a third child, he's in Kiev. And then my grandmother is in Zaporozhia. And my aunties my auntie and my uncle my cousins, they're in, they're in Ukraine. So i just been there like uh, two weeks ago because I asked my nanny to come to Bulgaria to look after my son because he just, uh, he started school and uh, I had to pick her up and bring her to Bulgaria. And the vibration in Ukraine, people already don't hear their sirens anymore. They live their own life. There is like normal life going on but people just more sad and tired and perhaps aggressive, I would say. Angry, because... yeah, fair enough. Yes. Cool. Yeah. My
0: stepdad, God bless him, he drove or was part of a convoy that drove a lot of aid into Ukraine. And he said, like, the spirit of the Ukrainian people was just incredible because he, he mentioned that idea of almost just everyday life is continuing. And they don't notice where he was like obviously hyper alert to everything, and everyone else was just cracking on, just going about the business. Because what else do you do?
3: Yeah, it's true. And also, like for my, for example, my brother's uh, wife, she said, "Look, life is going on, and if something happens, it, it should be happening. Like if not, then you know we we can't just sit down and and just uh, wait until something's." stopped or something happens so they said let's just live our life and enjoy ourselves as much as possible
0: hence you getting back into circus for which we are very grateful now i know that london this is going to be your debut london appearance but obviously you have played the uk before and so i wondered particularly maybe when you're in edinburgh whether you have ever eaten the snack that we have called hula hoops
3: Yes, a lot. <laughs> yes, a lot. Especially when, like, you know, well, we uh, we can't eat lots of food before the show starts, so a little snack will be easier and and lighter. So the hoops was just the ideal So <laughs> sure. <show>. Perfect.
0: <laughs> So Le Clique is at the Leicester Square, Spiegel Tent to January the 6th, and you can get tickets and more info from show.com or give you a follow on Le Clique the Show on social media. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me and have the best time in the UK. I get it. Thank you.
2: Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Jessica Hope. Musician and presenter of a new six-part Radio 4 series, Legend, the Joni Mitchell story, which starts on November the 2nd. It's part of a package of radio shows celebrating the 80th birthday of Joni Mitchell that also includes Joni Mitchell verbatim. And of course, if you're listening to this interview after the air date, you can hear it all as ever on BBC Sounds. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Thank you for having us.
2: Tell me about the first time you encountered Joni Mitchell and what it is about her music that first spoke to you.
4: Well, my father was a a folk musician himself. He had a, a record collection that had folk music dating quite a ways back. And so I grew up on his song selection. At some point I came across a CD, it was Ladies of the Canyon, in, in his collection, and it um, stood out because of the the kind of writing that it was from the from the time that it was created. It uh, I, and I I, w- I didn't know this back then, but from the time that those songs were created, it was absolutely unique in in nature. Um, the kind of songwriting that she was producing at that time, uh, for the time, was turning the tide of songwriting but what I was responding to was the feeling of what she was doing she has very flowering or flourishing melodies that are coupled with imagery that is just incredibly friendly like to sing along with a Joni Mitchell song is is like well to be completely engaged with a piece of music and I I think that's the first time I'd heard a songwriter herself herself and Paul Simon who comes later engage me in music in that way and i got to know all of her songs in the same way that i got to know Paul's in a absolute like memory kind of mm. embedding her music into my into my psyche into my emotional body and that's something that is a skill that she has that i don't necessarily understand So it was in his record collection. But that wasn't where it came to fruition for me in terms of my own relationship with her over the years. It was Stumbling Across, Song to a Seagull, which I thought was down the line in her discography because she sounds so fully, she sounds very mature Mm. and, and deep. Whereas Ladies of the Canyon, she's singing up in a higher register much of the time. She sounds more flutey and and feminine. And the darker tones of Song for a Seagull, to me, I thought they were related, but I learned that this was her first effort, Song to a Seagull. So it was finding her on vinyl in the Redwoods in California in a setting that brought those songs like really into from the world that she presented them into that, you know, bringing her world into mine in this particular very romantic setting.
2: Now, having listened to the first episode of your series and to the Joni Mitchell verbatim show, what was immediately striking to me about Joni Mitchell is that her story is the story of women of my mother's generation. You know, so many women I know have stories that are reflected in her story. A childhood polio, unplanned pregnancy the struggle to leave a bad marriage. I wrote in my notes that, that she was an every woman and then I realised that every woman is actually a way darker expression than every man. But then maybe that's a conversation for a different day. But I wonder how you see her. Do you see her as ordinary or do you see her as extraordinary or is she both?
4: Oh, absolutely extraordinary. Because the trouble that comes along with every woman is that you can be capsized by the circumstance. Your own will is trumped by the circumstance. And she, from what we learn about her, comes across as someone who took charge, who dealt with the the very difficult circumstances of the nature of the time, of the disease that she injured, and worked her way out of it, into claiming a path that is remarkable. She actually
2: says polio, quote, did her a solid. (laughs) <laughs> How yeah she described like the, that?
4: <laughs> putting, being put through the tumbler
2: again quite clear on being pregnant uh, an unmarried pregnant woman at that time she described herself as a fallen woman in the dark ages which is heartbreaking And her divorce, obviously, I love that, where she said he thought he'd married a dumb blonde. What a mistake, listener, he had not married a dumb blonde. A lot of those experiences are in her work, aren't they? But it's not necessarily clear. I mean, both sides now, for example, quite clearly about the collapse of her marriage. Where else can we see her life experience in her work?
4: Throughout the entire, I think that's what her work is. Her work is her life experience, I think. I heard her say in an interview that, To dry up as a writer is only to be afraid of, I'm paraphrasing, to be afraid of expressing how you feel. I think that if you listen to her work, it's all coming from her point of view and what she's experiencing, the relationships that are coming and going in her life, and a pretty constant theme that she wrestles with in in her own life. I think she's writing from where she stands and what she's going through and
2: what she sees. She approached her work in in a a very singular fashion. Again, uh, there's a lovely quote from In Verbatim that she talks about not having a producer. And she says, I didn't need anyone else to tell me how my music should be. That's pretty single-minded, not just for a woman in the music industry, but for actually for most people in the music industry at that point, isn't it?
4: Well, it is too, because there could be perceived rules about how a record or an album is supposed to be built To stand up and not just to stand up but also to compete so there'll be producers that that will say this has to be done and it has to do this and it has to do these things but she had the internal wherewithal to know that she she could hear when it was working and many women especially who need permission or need to prove themselves wouldn't take up that kind of courage mm. she didn't need permission she just knew that she was going to do it her way and I think possibly and maybe what she meant by doing her a solid with the polio having so much on the line and coming from such turmoil she understood that maybe she understood that there's nothing to lose mm. if you've already been so close to losing at all so maybe she was willing to risk yeah because actually,
2: all of those experiences that I listed at the top—the polio, giving a child up for adoption, and you know the the unsuccessful marriage—she's really young still at that point.
4: Yeah, I think I could be wrong. I think I, if, I, if I remember correctly, I think she's twenty-one when she's pregnant and treated like it like a criminal. It's hmm. the worst thing you could have been back then.
2: And this is a period that was actually really hard on women artists. I mean, there was a number of high profile casualties. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, Mama Cash, Janice Joplin, Karen Carpenter, it, it certainly took its toll, this industry on women. I wonder what you think it is that meant that, I mean, to say she emerged unscathed might not be true, but that something to the endurance of Joni Mitchell.
4: Well, she would admit to wanting to change her path a number of times. I think it's clear from hearing her speak that she was Really turned off by the industry, so many times. But no, I, I don't think anyone who—I no, she didn't make it out unscathed. <laughs>
2: yeah. does anyone?
4: Yeah. It was very hard on her in many ways, and it's just a oh, it's just a rot path, isn't it? Mm. Especially if you're going to tread it at certain heights and and then be expected to remain there.
2: But talking about your dad. Being a folk musician, my dad wasn't a folk musician. He was into folk, but interestingly, he had a lot of Paul Simon. He had a lot of Dylan. He had a lot of Joan Baez. He didn't have a lot of Joni Mitchell. I I I don't know why, and he's not here to ask why now. But the first time anyone ever said to me, "You'd probably like Joni Mitchell," pretty sure I was in a pub and I was talking to a. I would be nineteen twenty. I was being chatted up, or I was chatting somebody up, and somebody asked me what music I listened to, and I said I liked Kate Bush and I liked Tori Amos. And they said to me, You'd probably like Joni Mitchell. But I wanna say they didn't say it in a oh, you'd probably like Joni Mitchell. They said it in a oh you'd probably like Joni Mitchell way. Oh. Um, yeah. Remarkable. So obviously that conversation was ended. But I wonder if you can tell us in a in a much more vibrant and positive way than that, where we can see Joni Mitchell's influence across music now.
4: Oh, just listen to any artist Paul Simon is a good example. Mm. I haven't heard her speak on him. I'd be curious to know. They're very similar. Any artist that tells a story of their own life and their own feelings and their relationship in an intimate fashion, which I believe she helped develop that as a medium, Uh, songwriting was changed by her approach, along with a few others at that time, Leonard Cohen would be another, but anyone who goes into explicit detail about what they're feeling. If you listen to folk artists before, from my experience, it's like standards, traditional music has a stoicism to it Hmm. and a politicism to it that she veered away from. She was an emotional, an, an emotional artist, and gave you permission to flourish in in the poetry of your own experiences and to bring and to bring poetry in in an idiosyncratic fashion or she didn't need to follow the rules of past writers yeah. like leonard cohen does the same thing he, he decides that he's he's the you know he's the poet yeah. If
2: anyone listening here doesn't really know Joni Mitchell and, you know, when when there's a, an artist with such an enormous catalogue, you don't know where to start. So I wonder maybe if, if you could tell some of our listeners some good access points to Joni Mitchell.
4: It's wild because she travels with the times and, and something that I, I didn't realise until more recently, she really did travel with the times. She wore the decades like fashions, um, which I didn't expect because at a certain point my my knowledge of her music slowed down. Like I didn't know the the record Dog Eat Dog, which I'm not sure I would suggest as a a point of an entry point. I would suggest you start at the the beginning with Joni and see it through to where she is now and really give her the benefit of, of listening to each one. First of all, she made a record every single year that's for incredible. her first like seven years <laughs> uh, on top of all of the things she was doing to support those albums, mm. which is for an artist who writes her own material, like you you have you have performers like um Rihanna or you know people of this ilk who perform other people's writing, but and I'm not saying she doesn't write for herself, but to write and to write of that caliber and then to record it. And then to perform it live is an incredibly time-consuming endeavor. Yeah, how she managed that level of output to me is like, wow, she really had some energy. She had some serious energies. And and to to maintain producing her own records and and winning Grammys and returning to the limelight again, you know, in a different in different chapters throughout her time when other things were taking the forefront, you know, to still come through when like artists like Madonna and and pop was taking a different direction to have that kind of staying power in her own way and to hold her own ground. You have to see the whole cow. You have to listen to her whole discography. So start at the beginning, listen through and the ones that are going to surprise you, just listen again, because some of them might, might be more immediate than the others and just listen again and try and, and, and appreciate the time. Like Dog Eat Dog, for instance, may take some appreciation for the the kind of technology that was new at that time and how new it was that those sounds were new. And she was experimenting with a whole bunch of new stuff.
2: And what about yourself, Jessica? What have you got on the horizon?
4: I just recently brought out my debut record back. I put it on vinyl and I've been touring songs from my first record. I'm touring in, in January, again, around the United Kingdom. I'm in a writing season, so I'm I'm kind of in between, I'm in between albums, but I'm still touring and I'm I'm touring in January around the UK and, and I'm writing at the moment. And I'm collaborating with other folks as well.
2: Of that process, which part of that process do you enjoy or do you enjoy the whole thing? The writing, the making, the touring, or is it all part of the same package for you?
4: They all have their rewards and challenges, their peaks and troughs, so... It's all part of the same thing for me.
2: Thank you so much for this. I really look forward to listening to the other five episodes. There was loads of really interesting, lots I didn't know, which I always enjoy learning new stuff. So thank you, Jessica.
4: Oh, so much. It takes the it takes her off the page, so it's 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 a treat. I really suggest people tune in.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Thank you. You play ball like a girl.
1: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the Blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the Blocks, that time of the week when we sob mournfully into our shirt as we discuss all things women's sport. So my bad and my goodness, how did I miss the huge news last week and sad news that Emma Hayes, Chelsea women's manager, has announced that she will step down from her position at the club to pursue a new opportunity outside the WSL and club football. It's an interesting statement, and many pundits and journalists are suggesting that she could be heading towards the international setup. Now, obviously, we have Serena Vigman. I don't think we're looking for anyone else at the moment, so not with the Lionesses. But she has been heavily linked to the job of head coach over in the US. As we all know, they didn't have a great World Cup. A move into the international game. Kind of makes sense. It's not as relentless as the club set up. It would give her more time for other ventures, not least to her family, which she cited as the main reason for her decision. Speaking to journalists on Friday for the first time since the announcement was made, she said that she had a five-year-old who needs more of his mummy. I've been in the post for 12 years and I've dedicated my life to this place, she said. I drive four hours to and from this place six days a week, adding, I'm a mum. And not many football managers sit up here and talk about that in the same way. Well, not that many football managers are women. She said, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in the women's game for people with children quite right. Hayes will now work with the club to find a successor before the end of the season, but interesting times for Chelsea. A change of ownership recently, some pretty key players with contracts set to run out. Sam Kerr, I'm looking at you. What are they going to do without Emma Hayes steering the ship? Will they stay? Who knows? Hayes gets her final Champions League campaign underway with the West Londoners tonight if you're listening on Wednesday it's the only piece of silverware to elude her at the club but she did win it as assistant manager at Arsenal in 2007 so you know she's still done it what a coup it would be to take that trophy home again this season, but I, I do find that an unlikely outcome with the dominance of Barcelona and Leon in Europe. But look, Hay said she always wanted to leave at the top of her game and let's look at those achievements for a minute. She's won the Community Shield, two League Cups, five FA Cups and six WSL titles. Individually, she was named FIFA's the best coach in 2021, FAWSL manager of the season six times, LMA WSL manager of the season five times and manager of the month six times. These are huge shoes to fill for whoever takes her place. Beyond that, she's done unbelievable things in the women's game to improve its profile and to shine a light on its limitations. She's spoken, you know, a lot in recent years about the conditions that women footballers play in. For example, she's pioneered research into the bodies and training practices of women footballers. You know, Chelsea have been taking part in that sort of really key piece about the menstrual cycle, for example. She is... An absolute legend of the game. And I mean, anyone who listens to this podcast or has ever spoken to me probably knows that I absolutely love her. And she's a brilliant pundit as well. So that is another thing that, you know, she could spend some time doing. We have been so lucky to have her this long at Chelsea, you know, at at the top of the WSL. But let's enjoy her for the rest of the season while we still have her. That's all for me this week. And I'll be back next time with more women's sport.
2: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, what film are we apologising for this week? (laughs) This week we watched
0: 2008's I Am Vampire, Hear Me Twinkle. Sorry, I mean Twilight. It's called Twilight. Chapter one of one of the most successful movie series of all time, charting the romance of a lifetime, seemingly expressed entirely in stairs. And guns. Stairs and guns. Now there's a reason this romantic fantasy goes heavy on the brooding and ah 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 on the sex and that's because it's adapted from Stephanie Mayer's 2005 novel of the same name and Mayer's, a practising Mormon, draws the line at premarital sex for her characters. So for all its panting, lip biting and chick bones you could slice cheesecake with, Twilight is all about abstinence. And it works. I am definitely going to abstain from watching any more (laughs) Twilight
2: movies.
0: (laughs) Now, possibly the most terrifying aspect of this film about vampires is that it is led by women. May has provided the source material, Melissa Rosenberg wrote the screenplay, and Catherine Hardwick sat in the director's chair. Nothing jumping out to you about how damaging it might be to tell teenage girls they can change a dangerous, coercive man if they just love them hard enough birds.
2: No, no, no. no. As long as you say, I trust you, like, that's fine. All their previous behaviour is forgiven. They will never go bad again.
0: Indeed. Crack on, then. And crack on they did, to enormous success, with the film grossing $35.7 million on its opening day and making a breathtaking $407 million global total in cinemas. Oh, my God. Who doesn't love lovely money, eh? But filmmakers also want acclaim, and and yeah, Twilight didn't score quite so highly on that front, with the consensus being the story had lost much of its bite in the transition to the big screen. That's not
1: true. I've read the book and it's not (laughs) true.
0: We're going to get back to why you've done so much, so much research then. It led to a not-so-fresh 49% rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. That said, it has a fairly decent 72% audience rating, received a few award nods and thrust its love-struck duo, Christian Stewart as Bella and Robert Pattinson as Edward, into superstar status. Like I know the answer to this, but for the listeners, have either of you seen it before?
1: No. This is the second time I've watched it in the last six months. <laughs> Although I will say I watched it, the last time I watched it was with Vera, my, uh, my best friend, who decided that having never watched any of them before, she was going to use her maternity leave to embark on the Twilight Saga. And I was like, I'm here for it. Let me be your guide. I will help you. Yeah, I've read the books. I've watched all of the films.
2: Jen, are you able to explain why it's called Twilight then?
1: No, no idea. Given that most of it takes place in the days of home. No, is it because they are under a lot of cloud cover? So it feels like Twilight. I don't know. It's never explained, I don't think.
0: It wasn't going to be called Twilight when Stephanie Mayers wrote the book. It was going to be called something else equally. Bleh. Uh, but the the publishers wanted us to change it, so that's why it's called Twilight.
2: Okay, well that makes sense. Uh, hang on, I have another question. Sorry, Mickey, I'm interrupting you. This is in some way linked to Fifty Shades of Grey, of Grey isn't it? Fan Which...
1: fiction of this. Right, it was that way around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I when and up. when you when you read Fifty Shades of Grey, and I have read them all as well. I had tonsillitis and my flatmate brought them home. I had nothing to do. I read them. Anyway, um, I can't really explain why I read all of the Twilight books, if I'm honest. But if you were ever to read the Fifty Shades of Cray trilogy, it's very obvious what they've done there.
0: So, vampires, sexism, assault and ridiculously misogynistic men with saviour complexes. Let's look at the plot of this teen classic and find out whether Jen and Hannah are Twihard fans or scathing of Twilight. I know. The suspense on this one is unbearable, right?
2: <laughs>
0: Fresh-faced, perpetually sullen 17-year-old Bella Swan, that's Kristen Stewart, is forced to move in with her chief of police dad in the nowhere town of Forks so her mum can obediently follow her new husband wherever his <laughs> baseball takes him. Hashtag feminism.
1: Just <laughs> drop her <a> daughter. Soz. <laughs> he is more important than you. I'm off. Bye. At least she's honest.
0: Starting her new school, Bella being a grumpy cow doesn't stop her making loads of friends almost as immediately as her milkshake brings all the boys to her yard. Including James Dean-alike Edward Cullen, that's Robert Pattinson. And I mean that, like James Dean, Edward is dead. But, like, you know, special dead. Because, yeah, Edward is a vampire who, on first meeting Bella, so wants to eat her that he rushes out of the classroom and doesn't return for a week. When he does return, he's decided to befriend her, apparently so he can warn her they cannot be friends. (laughs) He's confused, (laughs) Bella's confused, I'm bored. But then, when Bella is nearly (laughs) struck by a skidding van in the school parking lot, Edward gets between her and the vehicle, stopping it with his bare hands. Bella gasps, which is pretty much her go-to response to everything at all times. Anyway, too long, don't watch. Bella works out he's a vampire but doesn't care as she is too run over by Edward's weird owl eyes and sparkling skin, which in no way (laughs) reflects a sparkling personality. And endearing lines such as, I want to kill you. I've never wanted a human's blood so much in my life. Are you afraid? And my personal favourite, hold on tight, spider monkey. (laughs) It's a love that shouldn't be. We'll stick with the party line that it's love that shouldn't be because he's a vampire and she's mortal rather than because of the stalking, gaslighting and threats of violence. Anyway, (laughs) she's fine because she trusts him. And anyway, the Collins are vegetarian vampires in that they only hunt and eat animals, not humans. Alas, they're not the only vamps in bookfork nowhere. And a trio of human eating slash actual vampires soon sniff Bella out at a vampire baseball match. Yeah, no, me neither. One of these vampires is James. James. James is an amazing tracker. James <laughs> is a phenomenal hunter. James will stop at nothing until he's hunted and eaten at Bella for sport. James is, according to his mates and the Cullens, an altogether terrifying vampire. James isn't even afraid to use the old I've kidnapped your mum ruse to get idiot Bella in his clutches. <laughs> and James is dead within like 15 minutes of him being a threat. Plot. In fairness, it's not before he's snapped one of Bella's legs and taken a chunk out of her neck, at the same time infecting her with vampire venom. Apparently, only Edward can save her by sucking it out. Whoa there, Nelly. But not going too far. Naughty. Naughty. Even though he says it's too hard. Bad boy, Edward. Down. Uh-huh. Before finally managing to tuck his cock back in his... Sorry, I mean, not deflower <laughs> his girlfriend. Uh-huh. She lives. Her virginity lives. Their love lives. Meaning there were five more of these insufferable fuckers available to watch. Yeah, no, I've, I've got nothing. I think there's four more. Oh, four more. There are four more of these I think insufferable fuckers. I'm I think still were...
2: horrified. <laughs> I was so distraught. I forgot how to count. Anything more than no more is unacceptable. <laughs>
0: so I've got written down. <laughs> Hannah, are you intrigued to see what happens next? Do you want me to tell you?
1: No. No, because no. No, honestly, it's it's... It is it's interesting in itself. It's not though. Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens. She has a baby that tries to kill her. Renezme. You read the books and you watch the films, if if indeed that is what you do and I and I did. And nothing happens. You read and being like, okay, like blah blah blah, blah. And in each book, basically the end there's like an end of level baddie and then like the end of you they get to the end of level baddie and it's kind of left a bit like, ooh. Oh, might that be a thing in the next book? Like, we'll see if that's a thing in the next book. And then you get to the last book, and they all get together for this massive big fight that they're supposed to have. Like that th- it's been brewing for for four books because they turned the series like they turned the last book into two films because they were like money, why not? Mm-hmm. And they get there for this fight, and then they go, oh, I suppose we could have a fight and kill each other, or like we could all just go home. Should we go home? And they all go home. That's it. That's the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. There are some like fucking amazing CGI wolves along the way. That's the only thing I would say for it.
0: I'd say thanks for saving us the time of doing it ourselves, but Hannah and I had clearly no intention of ever taking that time to find out for ourselves.
1: I don't know. I don't know. Man. You, new Moon might come up again, guys. I'm, I'm just just throwing it out there. I can't yeah, be held Yeah, well, responsible. I'm going to be <laughs> upset. sick. That's all I can say. I'm going to call
2: in sick that week. This was one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life, I have to say. <laughs> uh, and and not even good enough in it was funny or oh, I, I enjoyed it funny. being terrible. I just thought it was absolutely appalling. The acting is shit, the dialogue is shit, the plot is shit, the sexual chemistry is shit, the direction is shit, the soundtrack is shit, the message is shit. The message is really shit. The vampire lore is shit. In what meaningful way are these people actually vampires? They don't kill anyone, they go out in the daylight. They don't have rules about not killing any other vampires. They're not vampires. They do have rules about not killing vampires. And
1: in New Moon, you'll find out all about them.
2: Well, that's a newly introduced thing, because in this plot,
1: you could just kill a vampire and it's no, fine. No, there are consequences. Let me tell you, there are consequences. It is
0: suggested there are consequences, because Carlisle stops Edward from doing it and lets some of the vampires rip James's <laughs> head off instead. And then dance right. in the flames of his death, like some weird
1: campfire come by our... But they're outside in the daylight discussing this, right? They do say that there is a particularly dense cloud cover in Forks, Washington, which is why they are able to exist there. It did make me laugh as well, though, because
0: Robert Pattinson is clearly a, a naturally florid human. <laughs> so they're like, if he's, he's, he's blush keeps peeping through his very, very pale makeup, and as someone who blushes very, very easily, I did feel for him in that way. A couple of years ago,
2: while we're on him, I... Um, well, it's probably about whenever this came out, that period.
1: 2008.
2: We've got some friends in America and me and my mum my and my dad went to stay with them and, and they've got teenage daughters and my parents were sleeping in the bedroom of a teenage daughter that was literally covered in posters of
1: Our Robert
2: Pattinson, who I actually think makes me feel a bit queasy in this. The idea that he's a heartthrob is, is insane, but he clearly was. And uh, my dad actually asked to swap bedrooms with me because he said I just I can't wake up every day and that guy just been looking down I'm finding it I'm finding it horrific he's like I, I, I'm I weirded out by him just staring down at me with just the same pose in all of the pictures I think that's just his
0: pose isn't it uh, he plays Batman now doesn't he he's Batman he does yeah, the he's, Batman he's not bad as the Batman okay here's a fun one Stephanie Mayers has said Bella is and I shit you not a feminist icon. <laughs> oh my
2: God. She is a shit Jill Garvey. I kept thinking about that. Like her setup is very similar to Jill Garvey, as in she lives on her own with her dad, who's a police officer, and she's been abandoned by her mother, essentially. But whereas Jill Garvey is just full of, from the leftovers for anyone who doesn't know, who is just full of life and wisdom and is funny and all of that stuff, Bella is just, just the dullest heroin i think i've ever seen in anything so no if that's feminism that that she is basically a blank face and a blank slate waiting to have a personality grafted onto her then i yeah i disagree
1: <laughs> can i say why i think they, why i think people some people would argue not me i hasten to add can i say why i think some people argue that she is a feminist icon? i mean i could tell you why mayas has said that uh, but you you go okay. first well i i think it's because The idea is that she sort of goes out for what she wants and she says, no, 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 I'm not having you like control the terms of this and blah, blah, blah. I want what I want. And that does become clearer over more books, I would say. But yeah, what does Maya say? I want what I want and that's a man and a baby at a really young age.
0: Family, family, family. Feminism is the right to choose, Hannah. The right to choose. There you go. That is exactly what Maya says. She chooses her choice. Quote, the foundation of feminism is this, being able to choose. Which is interesting. And I would say that is definitely a tenet of what I consider feminism. But it's not the be all and end all of feminism. Doesn't mean I think we should applaud bad choices of, oh, it was a feminist action though because a woman made that choice. And also vampires, as we know, are quite good at glamouring and she quite often
1: appears sort of hypnotised by Edward. So how much is actually her choice? Well, I think it's a limerent relationship, isn't it? Like, I, I think that's what fundamentally undermines the whole thing is that, you know, they've been together for four seconds and she's like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it's just like, it's all silly. It's just fucking silly. But teenagers are fucking silly aren't they so you know it's... they watch this they are I think what it does quite well if you watch it from a perspective of someone who is not in any way going to be uh, influenced by the messages that it that it puts forward I think it does kind of make that sort of teenage longing and angst and whatever like that's the whole basis of it and it does that very well but that's not something that we should say take that into life and fucking run with it like hopefully that's something that people grow out of and stop
2: I think it's interesting because it's basically exactly the same time as this was when the Hunger Games yeah trilogy or four for quadrilogy I don't know what no they're idea. called yeah uh, was out and I have seen two of those I think because I had a lodger that really liked them and I, I, I didn't I mean, I didn't love them because if I'd loved them, I'd have rushed to see the other two. But I have to say, in comparison to Twilight, they are a work of staggering genius in comparison to Twilight. (laughs) Twilight is like a film made by Lidl in that I recognize all of the sort of constituent parts of it, but it all just looks really off brand. It's just off brand Channel 5 or Lidl or whatever entertainment. It's terrible. I hated it. I can't, I
1: can't believe you actually defended it. I'm not defending it. I'm saying that this is something that, you know, I think that it's it's not aimed at you. It's aimed at teenagers, Which basically. I find
0: and more worrying, though, because I think it's yeah, a no, I agree. Message but what message to aiming saying... at teenagers. And depressingly, Twilight audiences are 80% female. Because it isn't just the girls that are going to see it. It's what they call themselves twi-mums. So it's mums who are taking their teenage girls. And you're right, Jen, with an ounce of kind of, like, skepticism, I guess, you can see that this is a horrific message. It's very toxic. But it's just really quite upsetting that a lot of people still think it is, you know, big gestures are romantic. And, you know, the fact that he wants to protect her is really romantic even though it involves stalking her and not always having her permission to be there and coercion and gaslighting and yet it's seen as you know romance. Yeah I agree. That was a depressing stat about the kind of makeup of the audience. Another little bit of depressing news for you there is a TV series in the pipeline. Jenny you gonna watch it?
1: No I think I am too old now but uh i think i was probably a bit old when this came out but yeah no i definitely think i'm too old now i don't like twilight and watching it again as i did less than six months ago and again last night it is much 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 duller than i remember i think
0: that's its real crime as well like the message is awful but it's so boring two hours
1: is it can't carry two hours It, it really can't carry two hours it's it's long and I guess like the point of it is again, it's meant to be like teenage angst, blah, 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 and it's all like longing looks and blah 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 and whatever and like fine okay, but like yeah, it's too fucking long. Mostly I find it like funny, most of it. Like the bit where he's running around in the fucking mountains being like, as if you could be stronger than me, as if you could be faster than me. It just makes me laugh. It's silly. I agree it's silly. It is
0: uh, I didn't yeah, I, I agree. didn't like I was just so bored. It by it. I felt I felt quite angry at it. And I even to the point where I felt very angry at Tom York for allowing a Radiohead song to be used yes. at the end of it. I was like, what? Yes.
2: Yeah, I did try really hard to think of any positive thing to say about this because I don't like being entirely 100% negative. And the only positive thing I can say about this is that Anna Kendrick is good in it. Mm, the rest she is. of it is, she is good. She just is good it. appalling. Just absolutely nothing to recommend it to me or for me to recommend to anyone else.
1: I disagree. I think the soundtrack's good. Fair. It's
0: always, as ever, very
2: subjective.
1: Twilight, rated or dated? Yeah, it's dated, yeah. It's always been dated because it's only 15 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's dated, but I'd also just like to say it's total garbage as well. It's not just dated because it's old, it was never rated. Yeah, agreed. Hannah, is it you next? It is me. And we're going to watch something that I think we can all agree, before we've even started, it's going to be dated. Trading Places. Ah, uh, yes. Wow. But also,
0: hmm, oh, the conflict. <laughs> Standard issue
4: for all women.